I haven't seen this flower before. I hadn't either. I just drew it. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to Hide and Horn, a series exploring the functional artistry of custom saddle making through the words and experiences of those that build them. I'm your host, Ian Halligan. Like a Spaniard in the pit. My name's Andy Stevens, uh, Buffalo, Wyoming, and been building saddles uh, for 25 years. Born and raised in Orleans, Nebraska, Andy Stevens has been building custom saddles since 1994. The family connection with the state runs deep, with a lineage drawing as far back as the 1870s, when Nebraska had just received statehood that decade before. While coming initially as merchants and bankers, the family was always artistic, even when they switched to ranching by the turn of the 1900s. Surrounded by parents, grandparents, and other relatives both artistically inclined and accustomed to working with their hands, it was natural for Andy to enter into an industry that combined the two after graduating from high school in 1994. Uh, I read an article in Western Horseman about a saddle making school and it struck my interest and, uh, you know, back then there was no internet or anything, so read some magazine articles on some saddle makers and stuff and, and I was artistic anyway and it's just something that, that interests me, and I ended up finding a school and going to a school. Did you know early on, though, that you wanted to get into leatherworking? I just kind of reading those articles, and it just was kind of struck my interest. And I was kind of looking to say, okay, what am I going to do with my life? And college wasn't going to be for me. And just the avenue I went down, and I enjoyed it. This saddle-making school would be taught by Jim Darton out in Cheyenne. Over the next two months, Andy became acquainted with the basics, identifying the parts of the saddle and the general building process, receiving enough of an education to get started after returning home. While continuing to cowboy and rodeo, Andy would spend what extra time he had in a small home shop, taking repair orders and building saddles for friends and others around town. I had a little saddle shop there in Nebraska and, you know, I did repair, mostly repairs and I built a few things and, you know, and I was day working, cowboying and rodeoing and, you know, just living the dream. Well, it was a lot of struggle in the shop. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I didn't realize I was struggling. Looking back now, I was like, man, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I created a lot of, <laughs> I created a lot of havoc. That <laughs> <laughs> oh, was like the Jackson Pollock of <laughs> leather work. <laughs> Though these years spent building abstract interpretations of custom saddles proved difficult, this time of struggle would yield its own rewards. As Andy explains, these early lessons and experiences would show just how little he really knew. What was a nice thing going from that school and doing my apprenticeship was I had a few years of struggling there. And what that taught me is, and I tell this to a lot of people, is I got to the point where I knew enough to know that I didn't know anything. So when you, and I'm a firm believer in this because where I've experienced it myself, when you hit that point in something, then you're able to go into like an apprenticeship like I did. I was nothing but a sponge for information. I was just so curious. I was so passionate about learning. I I eat, slept, and breathed it just because I had had, the, I guess the best way to say it, I knew enough to know I didn't know anything. By the second half of the 1990s, Andy had left Nebraska for Colorado, continuing to day work on ranches across the state and building saddles in his off time. 
but understanding his own limitations in saddle making, as well as through his series of chance encounters, Annie would improve drastically upon entering an apprenticeship with renowned saddle maker Douglas Krauss. Uh, how that came about was just pure, pure luck. My oldest sister lived in Colorado and was friends with his wife. And through their conversations once, he was, she was talking about she had a little brother that was starting to do it. And, and uh, so one of the times I was out in Colorado visiting her, I had the opportunity to go meet with Doug and, and stuff and kind of start building a relationship with him. Then pretty soon he offered me an apprenticeship. Over the next two and a half years, Annie received an extensive education in all aspects of custom saddle making. Working full-time in the shop and helping with whatever was needed, Andy substituted monetary payment with intensive one-on-one education in the craft. I worked there, I was full-time, I worked there five days a week, eight to ten hours a day, and it was a true apprenticeship. I didn't get paid. I was there, I was doing whatever they asked me to do in turn for knowledge. So I started off just helping him with repairs you know, he had a contract with another gentleman that had a contract with Harley Davidson on saddlebags. So I'd help him build uh, their saddlebags production side of it. He builds uh, horsehair ropes, uh, Makati's. I'd help him on that side of the shop. I, if his wife needed, his wife was a horse trainer. If she needed help in the barn or whatever, I, I was there to help him do whatever. And in turn, Doug taught me how to build things properly. This form of education proved vital to improving as a custom saddle maker. At a time before the internet and with limited resources to learn from, an apprenticeship was an effective means to incorporate new ideas and strategies while receiving constant feedback and guidance. The apprenticeship with Mr. Krauss thus encouraged a refined understanding of the leather industry as a whole. First time I met him, he, I took some pieces of work for him to look at, and he kind of looked at him, and without saying a word, he just let me know that they were crap. He didn't have to say it. He was very gracious about it, but you could just you just say, oh, well, there we go. But that's a good thing. I took it as a good thing. And he was really good about, you know, if he did criticize anything or critique anything, it wasn't, okay, yeah, that looks like crap and leave it at that. It's like, if and where it was me, that was his famous saying, if and where it was me, this is how I would do it. Then he would sit there, no matter how much time it took, and help me through this, the deal, whether it be drawing or building something. He was very patient. He was very diligent. He was gracious. I mean, no secrets. I mean, him and his wife, they just they treated me like family. As time progressed, Mr. Krause would increasingly push Andy to figure things out independently of his direction, preparing him for the time he would eventually leave the shop. This moment would come in 2001, where Andy would make the decision to go out on his own. But while leaving the shop years ago, Douglas Krause continues to be a source of critique and a close friend. In the years since, Mr. Krause has come to see Andy not as a student, but as an equal in the industry. He was there helping me through every step of the way. Then kind of later on in my apprenticeship, he'd give me enough rope to hang myself. You know, he'd give me enough room to, to go out there and figure stuff out on my own and build that, that deductive reasoning, up, and which he helped build through the whole apprenticeship experience. But there towards the end, he was, he was really training me to go out on my own because I think he knew I was, I was getting to the point where I, I needed to be out doing my own thing. And, and uh, he, uh, he was very good about that. And, he, and he's still one of my best friends now, and, and we, we, we throw off stuff off each other still to the day. I mean, 
you know he's I still think of him as my my teacher my mentor but you know he he says now we're we're peers while working under another in the shop the year spent apprenticing provided a strong clientele base to support his move towards making it on his own while continuing a gypsy lifestyle through working on ranches and in shops across the country Andy maintained his work in saddle making and leather working but as his father and grandfather before him desire to create expanded into silversmithing leading to an apprenticeship under Dave Alderson while in Twin Falls, Idaho. I uh, got to spend some time with Dave Alderson, which is a good friend of mine, and he felt pity on me and took me under his wing. And Because at that point, I was I was really interested in the silver side of things, and, and I started trying to whittle on things and got to that point again where I knew enough to know I didn't know anything, and I got to work with some some great silversmiths there, but you know my major influence there was Dave Alderson. And you mentioned earlier too that it was just kind of a natural, like it made sense to just transition to silver. Yeah, I for me it did because I had I, I had a real passion to learn it. I mean, I like working with my hands, whether it's you know leather or you know wood or or uh, metals or you know whatever. I I just like creating. Eventually, Andy would find a home in Nevada, settling down with a family, refining his craft, and building a strong clientele that remained loyal customers. But while the majority of his clientele were based in Nevada, the passing over of the family farm prompted a recent move to Buffalo, Wyoming, where he continues to work in all manners of leatherwork, saddle making, and silversmithing from his home shop. Up next, Andy talks more on his carving and stamping work, and the important balance of function and design. Photos for this episode have been provided by Heidi Long Stevens of Crazy Woman Photography. Born and raised on the North Fork of Crazy Woman Creek in Buffalo, Wyoming, Heidi is an experienced photographer for any occasion. Find her work on Facebook and Instagram by searching Crazy Woman Photos. For me, you know, it all starts with the seat, the ground seat, and you know, the functionality of it, make sure it fits horses, fits a rider. Then, then after that, you know, the, the aesthetics of it, all the aesthetics need to be pleasing. And, you know, and I'm just about building a clean piece. I mean, I, from the inside to the outside of the saddle, it just needs to be nice and clean and aesthetically pleasing. In every saddle built, Andy emphasizes functionality before design. This is especially true in the fit where the ground seat, the part of the saddle between the visible leather on top and the saddle underneath, provides comfort for both rider and horse, whether riding a few hours for pleasure or during long stretches while working on the ranch. As a result, a custom saddle maker is well experienced in areas of human and animal anatomy, aspects that factor into the difficult to explain but nonetheless essential understanding of feel. I think you you got to get a lot under your belt. I mean, you got to get some experience. And you need experience. You need to understand the anatomy of horses. You need to understand the anatomy of the human being, whether it's male or female, because there's differences there. You can't teach feel, and you can't you can't shortcut on experience. You need to understand what it's like to sit in that saddle for hours and use it to be able to properly translate that into the piece you're building so you understand the full mechanics of everything. Experience and time are the factors that lead to comprehending and implementing feel when building a saddle. As another branch of the creative process, feel can equally be accomplished through a multitude of methods. 
This reflects the overall process, where the way in which a saddle is built slightly differs between saddle makers. I have a style that works for me that uh, I understand completely. Some of it, you know, I've developed and some of it I've, uh, you know, I've taken from other makers. We all, everybody has their ways of doing things. There's, there are 200 different ways to build a saddle. All comes out at the end with the saddle. You just find out what works for you and what's most efficient for you. And, and with that, you know, comes your, your style and your, and your interpretations of ground seats and, you know, how everything should be. And, and there's a lot of different interpretations as long as they work for the person you're building them for and they work for the, for the job that needs to be done and the horse that they're sitting on, there's no right or wrong. A central theme throughout Andy's leather work is the emphasis placed upon flow. Highly respected for his floral carvings, Andy combines and positions objects such as flowers, circles, scrolls, and vines across a saddle with the intention of leading the eye throughout the completed piece. There's a lot of flow to my work. There might be clusters of flowers, but yet it's still real flowy, and it creates a lot of depth too because where I stack those flowers and hide them inside and out and... I just like it to be aesthetically pleasing to the person. I mean, I just want their eye to be dancing and not to stop. You know, I, I want that piece just to, to grab them so they kind of, they just, it draws them into them. And whether it's right here or if they see it from a long ways away, I want it to, them to draw them clear across the room so they get up close to it and, and study it and look at it. And, you know, my, my best, best way to explain my work is like a big old bowl of spaghetti. And the flowers are like meatballs on there. <laughs> the metaphorical image of spaghetti and meatballs that typifies Andy's designs is equally emphasized through the use of depth. By making objects overlap or intersect, Andy creates the illusion of a three-dimensional object on a two-dimensional surface. I create the illusion of depth through uh, the layering of the, of the vine work and the flowers and stuff, being able to stack things and you know, hiding things behind and coming out and, you know, the intertwining. And for me, that's what creates a depth. It's kind of like painting, you know, a painter doesn't add layers of paint to create depth. They use, they create the illusion of depth. And that's the same thing we're doing here. We're actually sculpting that leather, but we're not, we're not adding to it to create the depth. The use of depth and floral carving seen throughout Andy's work draws from a wide range of influences and traditions. The years apprenticing under Douglas Krauss, himself a student of the Sheridan style through those such as Don King, can be seen in Andy's own work, while the years spent in Nevada and traveling across the West creates a style uniquely identifiable as Andy Stevens. Oh, uh, most of the saddles I do nowadays are, you know, a little fancier, a little higher end, and you know, I'm probably in that eighty to hundred and fifty hour range on saddles instead. I don't build too many just straight rough outs. I still build a lot of half-breed florals, you know, whether they're a slick fork or a swell fork. My uh, fl floral carving has got a Sheridan base to it because Doug was a, was a Sheridan. He, he learned a lot from Don King and those guys from the Sheridan guys. So it was heavily influenced by Sheridan, and it still is. My work still is. It's it's my own twist to it, but it still has you know basic fundamentals of Sheridan style carving and basic influence of that. While drawing influence from those working in the Western tradition, inspiration is also drawn from unlikely sources. 
As Andy recalls, inspiration can be seen in everything from photographs to a hotel bedsheet. This lady had photographed, it was, she was, she was a photograph, or a photographer, and uh, all she did was t- took pictures of flowers. They were cool, but you know, some of them were the same, same flower, or same species of flower, but they, you know, the, the, the actual flower was, you know, different angles, you know, leaves would be folded over different ways, and... I mean, I bought a stack of pictures from her. They were just like little greeting card, you know, postcard type deals. I see stuff, whether it be in nature. We stopped somewhere and stayed the night. And it was a bedspread on the hotel bed. I was like, I told my wife, I said, man, look at that. That's pretty cool. I sat there and took some pictures of it. And some of those things have been incorporated here and there. And, and I've got a lot of inspiration from those on flowers. The year spent developing his style has allowed Andy to easily incorporate these new designs into his existing work. While in the past, the brakes at Douglas Krause's shop burned through a lot of lead and eraser, these days the first penciling of a design is usually all that's ever needed. I kind of somewhat have it in my mind, but I'm pretty notorious for just putting the pencil on the paper and let it dance. And uh, early in my career, I burned up a lot of erasers. Now I don't so much, just because I kind of know what works and what doesn't work, and where I can fill in and, you know, I just throw a lot of junk in there, make it work. Another critical aspect that allows for the opportunity to experiment with different styles and designs comes from Andy's current relationship with his clientele. Like any business, the early years are spent establishing a name for yourself, seeking out clientele, and doing a lot of contract work to make ends meet. Nowadays, however, the opposite holds true, allowing for the chance to choose clientele that supports this artistic freedom. At one part in my career, I did get that way, and it would just pretty much come from the uh, the need of making a living. I was I was doing a lot of contract work, and I was just working on styles that I knew were that I could do. They were comfortable, they were fast, easy, and and efficient, and they were profitable. Then I, when I kind of got away from the cu- the contract work and went back to more custom kind of like loosening the belt after a big Thanksgiving meal. You can just kind of sit back and take a breath and the creativity just kind of went abundant then. And, and now I'm even in a even better place because where I don't like to consider myself part-time, I like to consider myself semi-retired. Uh, I'm not in here as much and I'm not taking on as near as much work and what I am doing I'm a lot more picky about what I do, so I get to really have a lot of fun with it. I'm very fortunate now to be able to pick and choose what I want to do and who I want to do it for. I mean, I I never thought I'd make it to this part or to this in my career, but because I know other guys that are are there and and uh, how much artistic freedom they have and how much easier their life seems to be. And I'm kind of, I've hit that point and boy, it's, it's cool. After the break, we explore how the saddle making industry has changed since Andy first started 25 years ago. When I kind of got into it, it was a little bit of a dying deal. There just wasn't a lot of young people getting into it. Now... Now this is the time to be in it. I mean, it's it's going places and it's a lot of cool places and 
public is very educated now about custom and high quality and which I throw a lot of that back to the TCAA. I mean, in the 20 years they've been around, they have been trying and do endlessly promote this as functional art and allowing us to get paid for that too. For the longest time, I mean, you you could sell your work, but it was, you know, the customer was kind of driving the price. Now we can kind of set the price and let the customers come to us. The past 10 to 15 years has seen a strong revival of the leatherworking industry. The rise of the internet has increased accessibility through the sharing of ideas and designs to new audiences. The industry itself has also drastically changed, with organizations such as the Traditional Cowboy Arts Association, or TCAA, legitimizing the highly artistic craftsmanship of the cowboy arts. We've been in a renaissance period, especially since the invention of social media. It's become an art form. And, uh, you know, a lot of young people in it have gotten into it that probably would never had gotten into it. But uh, now it's kind of the cool thing to do. And, you know, it's it's really fun to watch this industry grow. And it's gone from being a brick and mortar industry. There's very few shops and towns or anything to a to a cottage industry like myself, you know, and, you know, most makers. We work out of our houses. The popularity of Western leatherwork, especially that of floral carving, has also expanded overseas. Though not carved onto saddles, the impact of this style of carving has been both incorporated and reinterpreted for an overseas market. We're very contemporary right now. I mean, they, like I said, it's a renaissance age in, in saddle making and leatherwork, just leatherwork general. Not just here in the U.S., but I tell you what, Asia, they're passing us up on Western floral carving right now. It's just phenomenal, and and it's a uh, and it's a hobby kind of deal over there. But it's kind of a hobby for people who have time on their hands. God, the stuff that they're doing is just amazing. Yeah. And but man, they're just they're they're running away. On uh, you know on belts and case goods and stuff. Not necessarily saddles because they they don't ride this type of saddle and stuff. But you know on just just pure leather craft, leather work stuff. I mean, they're in floral, floral, Western floral carving. They're blowing the socks off everybody. Along with the growing popularity of the craft, so too as educational resources. Whether through the likes of instructional books packed with designs or YouTube videos demonstrating the entire process, along with leather working classes, more people are able to enter into the industry as ever before. But while the explosion of resources has increased access to and awareness of the craft, Andy sees this availability of teaching materials as bypassing the vital experience of struggle in the learning process. There's so much availability of resources to learn from nowadays. You got the internet, you got social media, you got uh, YouTube. It seems like every Tom, Dick, and Harry has uh, wrote a book or put out a video or uh, made a pattern pack. So it's pretty, there's a lot of resources out there to learn nowadays. You know, people don't have to, you know, they don't have to struggle to, you know, find stuff to, to learn. And, and which I think has kind of hurt our industry too, because it's, uh, there's been a lot of overnight successes, but they, they haven't had to come up through the ranks and learn all facets of the industry. So unfortunately for them, I, I, I can see them hitting some speed bumps through, through the business side of things. At the same time, the variety of resources misses key aspects when compared to a traditional apprenticeship. Education follows not just the craft itself, but incorporates life lessons and ways to conduct business in the industry. The importance of an apprenticeship compared to how people are learning nowadays is 
you have somebody right there teaching you everything about the business, whether it's customer service, whether it's learning how to take orders, whether it's learning repairs, building strap goods, you know, you learn the whole facet of the business instead of just, oh, just how to do a saddle or how to make a belt or a briefcase or a casework or something. You're learning everything about it. You're there for the day in, day out. You're there when things are going good. You're there when things are going not so good. I mean, you, you, you see all facets of it and you learn how to handle all facets of it. Through his years as a custom saddle maker, Andy Stevens has blended knowledge from a wide variety of sources. Whether through his apprenticeship with Douglas Krauss, traveling across the western U.S., where he incorporated the advice and influence of others, or developing his own style from a rich variety of sources, Andy has fused multiple aspects of the craft into his own work. The years have also taught the hard-to-explain but always important focus on functionality. It is this amount of dedication, both in the artistic side and technical side, that comprises a saddle maker. You have to have a certain amount of anal retentiveness, creativity, OCD to do this. You know, you got to be artistic but yet mechanical. And you're that's playing with both sides of the brain. And that is that's rare. There's a lot of good mechanics out there in the in, you know when I say mechanics, you know, building saddles, you know, everything is really good. But their artistic side is, you know, it just works. Then there's some guys that are really good art, artistic, but their mechanics are not good. And luckily, I've been very fortunate to, I think, be able to have both sides of my brain working good. And that's where Doug, he helped develop that too. Just as others have greatly influenced his own work, Andy also seeks to do the same. And working with and learning from some of the greats in the industry, Andy is just as dedicated to passing on his knowledge to the next generation. I think it's gone in a great direction, and I hope, I hope I have done my job of paying forward what's been taught to me over the years. Not just by Doug, he's been my main influencer, but I've had the opportunity to be around some great makers through my career and learn a lot from them. And I've tried to be an open book with people who've come to me and legitimately want to learn this. You don't have to look far to see Andy's pupils either. Along with receiving a Folk and Traditional Arts Mentoring Project grant from the Wyoming Arts Council earlier this year to teach Dusty Smith Western saddle making and leather carving, Andy's daughter is continuing in the family passion of functional artistry. She's pretty talented herself. She's nine years old, and she's already doing this kind of stuff with leather and silver and stuff. So I've started uh, uh, a Pandora's box for her of tools, and she's been doing stuff since she was just little. I mean, I've always had my shop in our house and she's always been with me ever since she was born she'd sit on my lap and watch me stamp belts for hours on end i mean she's my little helper i mean she's with me on the ranch all the time i mean if she wasn't in school right now she'd be standing right here You have been listening to Hide and Horn. This story was written and produced by Ian Halligan. Our main theme is by Luke Bell, and additional music was provided by Danny Huggins. This program is made possible in partnership with Culture Conservation Corps and with the support of a grant from the Wyoming Cultural Trust Fund, a program of the Department of State Parks and Cultural Resources. This program is also supported in part by a grant from Think Why Wyoming Humanities. Yes, I am.